Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. Red Letter Christians gets our name from the Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red. And we're aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. We know that the loudest, most prominent voices representing Christianity in America haven't always been the most beautiful or the most faithful voices. And we know that the way we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. How much longer will justice when a Book club! Uh, it's going to be a great night, y'all. I got it right here, buddy. It's so good. Nice. We, I feel like we're in our sweet spot right now. And this book club, we're going to keep doing it. So y'all keep telling us the different books you're reading or want to read together. We're doing morning prayer every morning. Uh, I mean, every every month. So we do the first of the month oh, morning God. prayer. So it'll be August 1st. We'll be uh, talking about peacemaking and doing common prayer. Uh, John the Wilson Hartgrove and I always host that. We have guests uh, every month. So um that's happening at just a little over a week. I think next Tuesday's August 1st, so 9 a.m. Check that out. Uh, we, we've got a bunch of stuff in the works um, for the next year, too. We're going to be doing some uh, faith forums, talking about kind of heavy issues of justice. And so that's that's uh, we, we've done all kinds of those on gun violence and the death penalty and police violence, r- racial justice. Uh, so we're going to keep doing those. But I love the excuse to have uh, <laughs> I have to read to do my homework. And if y'all didn't do your homework, it is all right because <laughs> uh, it's going to be a great conversation. But um, yeah, what a book. What, what I mean, you've been on a roller coaster, man. I think of you all the time. Just love any chance man, we can be together. That. Yes, sir. So, if Man, y'all don't I'm, know, I'm... <laughs> our guest tonight is, you know, Dr. Jamar Tisby, but we're going to call him Jamar tonight. He earned that, earned that doctor. So we'll, <laughs> we'll get that out there, but he's written all kinds of stuff. We, you know, we, we celebrated the release of uh, your book, The Color Compromise, New York Times yeah. bestseller. You've done all kinds of speaking, writing, consulting, and, um, it, it just feels like you know, such a get all kinds of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> that good trouble. Yeah, good man. Trouble. I'm saving up. I'm saving up to to ask you to write a book blurb for for my next book. So I saw uh, that, man. Yeah, um, man. Yeah. You'll, well, you'll... I'm I'm honored. I would be honored, of course. Um, yeah, and um, this one. So you know, we talked about the color compromise, but I want to talk about this this book tonight. We can talk about anything you want, man. But um, yes, sir. First yes, of sir. all. You know, for folks that that might be grabbing this or or are are just starting to dive in, um, tell us a little bit about why this book now. You know, why why this yeah. is kind of the fire in your bones because you got all kinds of opportunities to write, but this is the book that you chose to write right now. Well, the fun part is I will never forget the publication date. It was January fifth, two thousand twenty-one, and then January sixth mm. happened. <laughs> so. That date is cemented in my brain. But the reason why I felt the need to write this book, How to Fight Racism, Courageous Christianity, and the Journey Toward Racial Justice, is because whenever I give talks, whenever I talk about racial justice, anything around those lines, the most frequent question I get is always, what do we do? 
It's always some version of the, okay, we, we heard you. We believe that racism is a thing. It's not just a problem of the past. And we want to be part of the solution. But what does that look like? How do we get involved? How do we get started? How do we continue? How do we stay motivated? All of that is what went into writing this book, How to Fight Racism. And as the title says, it focuses on the practical. Um, it is a very much an actionable book. So even though it's a book, I tell people it's about action. So for those yeah. folks who are like, oh, not another book, not another book club. We need to get busy. We need to be like Shane Claiborne, get doing the work. I'm like, yes, and amen. And this is something that can help get you started or keep you going. I love it, man. And I I, I really, I've read so much of this and there's, 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 there's like so many books out there right now, you know, that are absolutely incredible and you're a historian you you know there's a 1619 project the all michelle alexander stuff there's like so much that's uh, ibram kendi uh katie's been reading me stamp from the beginning we've been reading that together so there's all kinds of that good stuff but there, this th i think your gift to the world in this book is is it does have some real concrete handholds you know yeah, like some yeah. real practical ideas of where to start and you're not just writing it for for white folks that are leaning in and you can tell as you're writing that this is a book that's for everybody and and people that's are coming right. from different social locations so you address that you know speaking to white people at sometimes <laughs> or speaking to people of color or particularly you know specifically to black folks sometimes yep. uh, but yep. you know you've got this framework i don't know if you invented it but uh it seems like i did yes i'm <laughs> that, got, a, getting a trademark when you've right got now. your own diagram <laughs> you, you're, you you're legit on that so um, yeah, i know from you know, majoring it. in sociology all the all the diagrams nice but nice tell us about the arc you know because it, it yeah. shows the non-linear but the connected connectivity of these three Yo, uh, this you know this is it's it. it's like way um the whole book is way more structured <laughs> than I am in real life. So I can't wait to tell folks about it because I think the structure is helpful. So number one, um, you mentioned all these other great materials out there and I agree. And what folks like me who sort of like speak and write and talk about racial justice do is we major on the diagnosis but not so much the uh, prescription or the solution, if you will. Um, so even my first book, The Color of Compromise, 10 chapters of history talking about what went wrong when it came to uh, many Christians and racism. Uh, and then one chapter on the how-to part. Now, that was a setup because I knew this book was coming next, but still, proportionately, um, most of the book is, is, is diagnosing what went wrong and then relatively less time on what to do about it. And then in addition, the other problem I noticed is to the extent that we do address what to do about racism, it's often just this scattered kind of uh, mismatch of, of different things. Like it'll be a bullet point list at the end of a chapter. Some of it will be personal, what in an individual can do. Some will be like policy. Some will be what an institution can do. Some will be in a sociological realm. Some will be in an economic realm. So even if you wanted to take action, how on earth do you keep all that together? And so that was my burden. And so I decided rather than just come up with like a whole book of just like different things people could try, Let's put some structure around it. And that structure mm. is what I call the arc of racial justice. And it stands for awareness, relationships, commitment. Mm. And 
the way I think of it is like the three legs of a stool. Um, I don't know about you, but I would not want to sit on a two-legged or a one-legged stool. That wouldn't be very stable. But a three-legged stool, you can build on. So the awareness piece is what we're doing now. We're listening to talks. We're going to panels. We're reading books. We're watching documentaries. It's all the information, the knowledge we need to understand race, racism, white supremacy. In addition, though, we need relationships because relationships are what this is about. Ultimately, it's about people, right? It's not about some abstract rule or policy. It's not about some abstract conception of justice. It's about human beings made in the image of God and what we owe to each other as fellow image bearers. So, and I make a distinction, white people, when we talk about relationships, that means you got to take account of the fact that for centuries, you have been putting up barriers between yourselves and people of color, which means it's going to take an incredible amount of intentional effort to overcome those barriers and build bridges. Mm -hmm. uh, that meaning it's not going to happen by itself. You got to change some things if you want actual diverse relationships. Yeah. And then to black folks, black folks and people of color, we got to have communities of solidarity and refreshing. So we've got to ally with one another within different minority groups, and we've got to have spaces that affirm our identity and our experiences without having to explain it or become even more exhausted. And then lastly, commitment, which automatically, you know, it comes to mind while staying the course. Well, it is that. But what I mean by commitment is a commitment to systemic and institutional change, recognizing that racism isn't just interpersonal, it's also institutional. And so that we have to change institutions, policies, rules, laws that govern the way we interact with one another along lines of racial and ethnic differences. So altogether, that forms the arc of racial justice. The whole book is structured around that. Three chapters on awareness, three chapters on relationships, three chapters on commitment. And um, even within those three chapters of each of those three sections, you focus on the theological or the, the spiritual, you focus on individual and you focus on the systemic or institutional yeah and you know you're you're really all through the book you're kind of acknowledging that there are things that have been separated from each other i mean the the glaring one is this idea that um this is about individual uh racism like per you know the personal prejudices the racism in our own hearts versus the institutional and the systemic stuff and you kind of refuse to to have the either or on that and you all through it you kind of are holding these together i mean we try to do that with a lot of things that red other yeah. christians you know faith and works loving god loving your neighbor like jesus and justice we say are like blades of scissors they got to operate together i, you know? I like that one. Uh, but yeah. that you know this this idea that this is just about heart change and individual mm. racism, or there's some people that, that kind of almost ignore that part and are just focused on, you know, the systemic and institutional change. So um, I don't know if you want to say more about that, but I want to, yeah, you know, I want to dig into that a little bit. Well, we know we, 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 we've got to understand this is a function of how a, a white supremacist ideology works. And I hope that language is not like too like, ah, for, for your listeners, but uh, you know, especially after the civil rights movement. One of the things I say in my first book is that racism never goes away, it adapts. And what happened after the civil rights movement was a way of viewing 
race that we now call colorblindness. And so the the idea uh, was to be able to perpetuate racial inequality without ever saying the words race or black or white or, or anything like that. And part of the way colorblindness works is to say that racism is really about attitudes. Mm. It's about how one person feels about another. So, so if, if Shane is nice to me as a black person, he ain't got no problems because fundamentally the problem of racism is how you feel about someone who looks different. So guess what? If I'm nice to people who are different, then I'm not racist. And that's how you get all these folks (laughs) doing racist things that say, I don't have a racist bone in my body. Well, um, first of all, uh, or, or you get folks who say, some of my best friends are black, right? Some of my best friends are whatever. Well, number one, make sure your black friend would say the same thing about you. Because a lot of times they're like, what are you talking about? We don't even have each other's phone numbers. We've never hung out. And you're saying I'm one of your best black friends, whatever. Um, The other problem with that is it's not your one black friend. The sociology tells us you need to have a network of people who are different, right? So it's not just, just, just knowing one or two people who are, is a whole ecosystem of relationships that then begins to change your perspectives. And the last thing I'll say is the great part about the arc of racial justice is it's sneaky because no matter where you enter through awareness, you read a book that blows your mind or uh, relationships, you get to know someone who really changes your perspective or commitment. You're involved in some sort of cause that, 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 that opens your, your uh, framework of thinking. Any one of those is going to catch all three. So if I'm involved in a march, let's say, call that under the commitment heading, I'm going to develop relationships with the organizers, with the people I'm marching with. And by knowing them, it's going to change my awareness. Mm-hmm. Or let's say I watch a documentary and that one motivates me to tell someone else and say, you know what, we need to, we need to have like a viewing party or something and watch this together. Now I'm forming relationships. And then pretty quickly, you've been in these groups. Okay. We've talked about it. We've been in a circle, you know, lamenting about it. What are we going to do about it? And now you're on to commitment and action and policy change. So it doesn't matter where you get in, get in where you fit in. But the the beautiful sneakiness is it's going to encompass all three, no matter how you enter into this justice work. Yeah, you know, as I I was reading and thinking about this with you as I was kind of uh, having my internal monologue as I'm reading the book, you know, I'm like, you know, I the relationships are essential to this. And you kind of point out like no one has ever done this work without being in like meaningful relationships. 100%. And you know, there's a lot of people that critique that idea of sort of come on, you know come on. Howard Thurman that we can be in proximity that's not relationship of that's love right, and right, respect right. for each other so like even though you know black folks and white folk, folks live t- close together or even in the same towns that's not enough and having relationships where we're rubbing shoulders with each other and you you can you you talk about promise keepers and some of these other occasional <laughs> gatherings you know where you had these very um sensational uh, kumbaya kind of we're going to hold hands and uh, t- let the walls fall down come on that was in that world you know uh, um and that those those are some breakthroughs there's some breakthroughs yes but absolutely kind of thinking the relationships it's kind of like you can't build a house without a hammer mm. but you need more than a hammer you know and, and yes. there's also you can use a hammer 
in bad ways too, not just to Absolutely. build something constructive, but like you can abuse relationships too. Mm. So I, you know, I, I uh, was thinking about that, as you say, you know, racial justice is relational. It's the tender heart. The relationships are the tender yeah. heart of all this. Um, and then, so, you know, you, you kind of keep inviting us to, to go deeper with those relationships. Right. So I don't know if you want to say dude, more about, you know, how to it's do that. huge. I'm, 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 I'm so glad because you're, you're, you're an actual activist and, and, and I'm so grateful to have this conversation with you. Cause I, I, I really actually want to learn uh, from you how, how to make something like this better, improve it, fill gaps, all that stuff. Um, the relationships part, the, in my uh, experience, this is where the sort of progressives like to try to skip over because it's always about, no, we got to change the system. We got to change the policy. We got to change the you know institution. And especially when it comes to people who may not check every box that you do. Now, I'm not saying, you know, cozying up with with racists, with, you know, people who are denigrating other people, but they're different camps. You know, um, I think what black folks did throughout the black freedom struggle, but you see this, especially in the civil rights movement, is have temporary alliances for specific goals, right? Mm -hmm. And so they could get together. It was ecumenical. They could get together with Jewish people, with Muslim people, with uh, atheists, and work toward dismantling racial segregation. Do we still have that sort of broad-mindedness when it comes to relationships in the justice movement. There's mm -hmm. also the fact that I think it's very theological, right? Like this is not, I, I can't think of fighting racism as a Christian without thinking of my faith, which is not to say that everybody who does a good job fighting racism, you don't have to be Christian at all. We've got a lot to learn from other folks. But for me as a, as a Christian, it all comes down to uh, the incarnation. Hmm. And how did God bring about reconciliation? It's through a person, Jesus Christ, through a relationship, yes. which is individual, but it's also communal and corporate. And if I have an individual relationship with Christ, that's, a, that's supposed to affect everything around me and yeah. the way I view the world. So it doesn't remain individual, but it always remains relational. Yeah. And, and one of the, the kind of related concepts uh, that that you you address in the book is so out of relationship. There's a lot of these organizations that started, uh, especially, yes. um, uh, you know, like CCDA, the Christian Community Development Association. For those that are not familiar, it was um, it's kind of the legacy of Dr. John Perkins. But it also mm -hmm. you had his son, Spencer Perkins and Chris Rice that, you know, one black, one white that wrote a book together more than equals. You know, I got to know them like back in the 1900s. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and a lot of these organizations that started out of this like relationship, friendship. I was even this week, Jamar, I learned of a new one. I was with this group, uh, the International Council of Christian of Community Churches. And it was, um, in the 1950s. So, I mean, that's important. No. 1950, like that, that, uh, um, predominantly white church, or I mean, I'm pretty much all white church and, um, uh, black churches got together and said, love has to transcend, uh, mm. segregation and, and, you know, our, our society's racism. And so they 
created this coalition. I mean, I was speaking there this week to these That's folks. That's beautiful. This organization. And, and, and yet there are some folks that are ready to throw out the word reconciliation, which yeah. has been such a yeah. pillar to these, these historic groups, even to a lot of folks that are just beginning to wade in the water a little bit, that they use the language of reconciliation. So I'm quick. Um, not to deconstruct things too too much that other folks are finding helpful, but at the same line, you know, this can be a kind of trite, shallow reconciliation. Mm-hmm, so you say, you mm-hmm. say, uh, you know, page eighty nine. You say it's impossible to speak of reconciliation. If it's possible to speak of reconciliation with God, then it is possible to speak of reconciliation between people of different racial and ethnic groups. And you um, kind of insist that this is not something we give up on. It's rooted in scripture. Reconciliation is a useful word in the journey of racial justice. So even though it's been cheapened in some spaces, um, and even though the argument's true of, you know, I've heard my friend Mark Charles and plenty of others that say, how can you get to reconciliation if we never had conciliation so right right you, you I, I can tell that you've like uh chewed on that and you you <laughs> so, right. say a little bit more about why you haven't given up on reconciliation and you know you really validate the idea that no one's arguing that white folks ever had a healthy relationship uh with native americans or you know or black folks so right yeah. right right that, that that that's a great point um you know my good friend latasha morrison of be the bridge her 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 framework is is reconciliation. And I can rock with that because I know what she means by it, right? Yeah. So I, in the book, make a distinction between what, in particular, white evangelicals have done with this idea of racial reconciliation. Namely, they've, they've so individualized it that they've basically emptied it of its transformative power because it has no real meaning beyond like getting a cup of coffee and having a black person pour out their heart to you about what it's like to be black, you know, something like that is so much more than that. But in that section that you read from, I really uh, take on this idea of we can't talk about reconciliation because we've never been reconciled. There's never been a point in our history, particularly in the United States, where black people and white people or Native American and white people or whomever have had this beautiful, harmonious relationship to which I say Well, we use the word reconciliation when it comes to humanity and God and what Jesus has done for us. But when in anyone's life have we had a perfect relationship with God? Yeah. So so, so where's the re part when it comes to our relationship with God? And then if, if we can use that in that relationship where there's never been a moment where we've been perfect with God, right? Um, Because we're always in rebellion somewhere then it can, I would say, be used between people because, I don't know, you can go back to Eden if you want If you want to. That's the last time there was ever true conciliation, right? But I still find it as a useful term as long as we define it and as long as it means more than some heart-to-heart conversation with somebody who's got lighter skin and somebody who's got darker skin. There's so much more to reconciliation than that. But let me ask you this, Shane. Yeah. Um, I think you modeled this even online. So I'll see, we'll get tagged in, you know, some of the same posts and whatnot. And you are gracious enough with trolls, with people who disagree with you, with people who are even calling you names. You're like, hey, I'd love to talk about it. And I'm like, where does that come from? Like you have a sincere, genuine offer to them 
to continue the dialogue. Um, where does that come from? What's your approach, especially online? Has anybody ever followed through and how did that go? The, the, the social stuff, the virtual friendships, virtual. So there, there, I, there's all kinds of cool stuff that I've seen come out of it. So I'm not knocking that. I mean, you know, um, but I find that people act differently when they're mm. behind a screen than when they're looking into your eyes, you know. Um, and so I, 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 all that I know is um, I have limited energy to respond in pixels and texts and it just it really wears on me i just don't like looking at screens that much so one of the first things i often do is say hey i care enough about you to talk with you not at you and not mm. you know be behind a screen and i find that if people actually want to engage um then they're willing to let me take them out for a coffee or a drink you know they're willing to like Unreal. or at least grab a minute on the phone i mean you know sometimes yeah. we're in different countries or something but like i i i um and I find that those conversations are really generative, even if we disagree, you know? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I Cause they probably come but, across real differently when, when you're on the phone or in a meeting. Yeah. And I, I think there's just uh there's more to hide behind, you know, I think that's why you, you pull out this verse actually in, in, in your right in this book of Matthew 18, that, that, you know, Jesus is telling us when, when, even when we think someone's, out of line when they've done something wrong that we respect them enough to talk directly with them mm -hmm. and and if they don't listen then maybe we take one or two other people and then they and i've tried to do that even with you know franklin graham and sean foyt and wow. people that i think are spewing really really dangerous theology and rhetoric yeah. and um but every single one of them and you know for to, like someone like sean said i'll call you and i get happen but i i think the invitation's always there and some of it's wow. not about them or changing their mind but it's protecting my integrity right i mm. this is who i am i'm mm. not gonna like stoop my own morality to like little to just bicker on twitter or something you know yeah. like I, i'd rather talk with you preferably in person but i know that that you know i've got a that's that's a little different sometimes too i think there's a there's a degree as a man as a white person you know there's there sometimes yes. um there's i'm very aware that um it can be even more tiring when right. someone hasn't done their homework as you say in the book you that know was... and done at least a little bit of work to even speak the same language otherwise otherwise it's not even like it's like we're not even having the same conversation, you know? Right, right. I mean, that was exactly going to be my follow-up question was whether you thought um, that was sort of the same responsibility for other people. You mentioned, you know, being a man, that certainly is a is, a, is an issue uh, in terms of safety and comfortability if you're a woman interacting with someone, but also for a Black person or other people of color, right? Like we have to spend so much energy just surviving right just just defending and deflecting against not even the trolls who are out to you know cause trouble but just like life right and so yeah. i've often felt that as much as i theoretically would be willing to have these conversations unless it's someone i'm actually in like physical yeah. proximity with and and it you know we it makes sense for us to to have that conversation i'm probably not going to do it in terms of reclaiming my time, protecting my energy, and even sort of my mental health, right? Like it, entering into a hostile situation, potentially hostile situation as a Black person, um, 
for the sake of like reconciliation, I think where I fall is a, I want to spend my best energy um, serving the people who are either being victimized or who are already on board with, with being part of the solution rather than sort of doing what I call racial apologetics, making the case that racism is real, you know? Um, And then the other part is, you know, to the folks who, who listen and say, this sounds harsh. Like he doesn't like white people. It's not messing with them. I always say, and it's, it's actually goes beyond race. It's it's more of an ideology and a mindset, but I always say um, like that old, I think it's the red roof in <laughs> the hotels. We'll leave the light on for you. They used to have these commercials that said, we'll leave the light on for you. In other words, that is to say, I am not in a season where I'm spending a whole lot of my time uh, trying to convince or persuade the people who are resistant to racial justice. But that's not to say that at some point, when you're ready, when you want to have a real conversation, when you want to learn that we can't do it. Yeah, I'm there for I'm there when you're ready. We'll leave the light on for you. But I'm not going to sit out all night waiting up for you to come to the door. That's yeah, all. Yeah, <laughs> no, I th- I, that makes so much sense, man. And I think, you know, some of it is just going. Um, you know, where's the burden of responsibility here? Like you, I, you've got an right. open heart and open ear from me, but I also need you to do some stuff before you show up, you know, like we need to have some common term terminology. And then there's other things that like, you know, I feel like I, I've done some things that I know I can do as a white man. Um, like, for instance, when I went to Greg Locke's church, which was at the time he was spewing all kinds of conspiracy theories. Yeah. They had no mass allowed. Uh, it was a mass mm. free campus. So this was the irony of that theology. And I wrote I wrote about it. Uh, but it is it, you, they said you, we won't wear masks because God will protect us from coronavirus. But they still carried guns to church, you know. And uh, but I, I, was, I was nervous when I went in there. You know, I mean, there's yeah. guns strapped on. I can see them, you know, and I went in with a mat. Not only a mass, but a mass that said, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter to God. And, um, and, and, you know, I wasn't there to pick a fight, but I was there because I wanted to diagnose this. I wanted to listen and I got to meet meet him afterwards and all of that, because I think my particular location was like I I, I told my wife, I said. I really, there was some deep principalities and powers there. Like, wow. like nothing I've ever, I, believe done. I mean, it. I even, yeah. I'm even talking in the charismatic Pentecostal world right now, y'all. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm talking like there was some Absolutely. stuff in that, you Absolutely. know, like, um, ways that we, that there's a lot of different ways that courage looks, you know, and I think That's like good. Colin Kaepernick is different from Rosa Parks. It's different from yes. Bree Newsome, right? Who took down the oh Confederate flag. Like there's all kinds of different, and there's, all, those are, those are the ones that we know about, but there's all kinds of everyday courage that people show in their workplace, in their schools. And so I think that that's one thing you do so well is it's not about a prescription, but you're not prescribing, but you're provoking, you know, and and you begin the book by saying this is an invitation to dream. And I think one of the best things you do in the book is, is invite us to dream of what courage looks like to uh, to each of us in our own space and skin. Yeah. 
Well, I'm super excited because right now we're in the midst of a podcast series um, called Fighting Racism. And for folks who are interested, easiest thing to do is subscribe to my Substack, which you can do for free, jamartisby.substack.com. We we put out an announcement every new episode. But to your point about, you know, uh, inviting folks to envision what fighting racism looks like right where they are. I ask my readers on Substack, well, what what what's the next podcast series you want to hear from me? And they were very gentle and very kind, but they basically said, Jamar, we don't want to hear from you. <laughs> we don't want to hear from the people who speak and write and talk about this all day, every day. We want to hear from folks like us mm-hmm. who have day jobs and families and do other things. Yeah. So this fighting racism series is about everyday folks who are fighting racism right where they are. So our first episode, we had a black homeschooling mom who's really catalyzed in the past few years by all the stuff she's seen and is trying to bring diversity within the homeschooling curriculum and community. We have um, this upcoming week. The episode is going to be with a guy named Stanley Frankert. When he was 16, he shot a guy in the face. The Mm -hmm. judge showed mercy on him, gave him less time, but he still spent a decade in prison. And during this time, he had this unbelievable conversion to Christianity and started a nonprofit while he was on the inside. And then when he was released, he's continuing it. Um, and, and the goal is to reduce the rates of recidivism of recently released um, people. And he's doing that through character education and professional skills development. So mm. these are folks who, who uh, in many ways are demonstrating courage. And what I hope to do with this book, How to Fight Racism, as well as this podcast series, Fighting Racism, is simply to show people like, number one, it takes all kinds of forms. Homeschooling, we got somebody who's involved in um, environmental justice. We got uh, an episode on how white people can talk to other white people about relationship, or about racism and, and white allyship. So it looks different, but mm. what is common is the call to courage in the face of injustice. Yeah. And I'm just trying to show in as many ways as possible how we can do that. And and as you're as you're writing, one of the things that you did in this book is you um you kind of come at that from a lot of different angles. But the one the one I, I wanted to hear you talk a little bit more about too is uh this uh, this idea of theological racism, right? Mm. So for for a bunch of years we've been telling people at Red Letter Christians, you know, do a do a theological audit. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like look at your bookshelf and see how many of the books are by women or by women of color, black women. You know, yes. how many are by theologians uh, that are not white, you know, that are not men. Uh, and and particularly, I think, um, as you look at this, one of the things your great lines is um, that we have been um, more willing to learn from the theologies of slaveholders than the theologies of the enslaved and oppressed. Come on, uh, come so, on. Come on. Huh? That's a so, good uh, line. Who wrote that? No. <laughs> Who wrote that? <laughs> uh, See, now I can say, as my friend Jamar Tisby says. Uh, um, that's so but, right. You know, that's that, so right. That, uh, and you, and you, you say, like, name... And, and I'm, I want to say this to folks uh, that are listening, especially those of us that are white, like he, he in the book, Jamar says, uh, name five theologians that are black, that have are spoken 
um, truth into your journey. And, and we might also say like, you know, f- female theologians and you, yep. you kind of invite us to do that audit. So um, that's, that's one of those pieces, but you got a, a bunch of diamonds in there that, uh, that the theological <laughs> racism was a good one though. You want to say more about that, man? I Listen, I was steeped and immersed in this stuff. I went to reformed theological seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. You you can't get more conservative than that in in a whole lot of ways. Right. And I I spent five years and 107 credit hours getting a (laughs) master's in divinity. Who's counting? I am. Um, And throughout all those classes, all those semesters, almost no people of color Almost no women did we even learn about. Number one, all my professors were white men, except my missions professor, who was a darker skinned Brazilian. Um, and uh, that was part of the training and and the sort of audit I had to do. But then I distinctly remember it was a, a class on the Pauline epistles, and we were looking at different theological interpretations of Paul. And that was the one and only time we really learned about anything like Black theology. Mm. And it was only in the context of here's Black theology, here's how it went wrong, and here's the correct view, which, by the way, happens to come from a European white man. So. <laughs> like so that's good. the theological racism, you know? I mean, even, um, even that, when you talk about how we have, um, you know, black theology or black, you know, liberation theology or whatever, or you just have just normal theology. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's just theology. It's, it's, if it came from Spurgeon yeah. or uh, R.C. <laughs> Sproul or some white man, right? It's just theology. It has no qualifiers. As yeah. soon as it comes from a, a person of color, a woman, anyone who's not a white male, it has to have an adjective. It's black yeah. theology, it's Latin American theology, it's feminist theology, it's womanist theology, yeah. whatever it might be. And so, one of the problems so, with this, too, that you, you you know, that's underneath all this is that when people's theology begins to crack, a lot of times they abandon it all. You know, I meet people all right. the time that they tell me, you know, they, they explain to me the deconstruction of their faith or why they left, you know, the church. And, and, and part of me inside is going... You didn't give up on Jesus. You gave up on John Calvin. Like, like you know what I mean? Like, 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 right. you, like, just because you're fed up, like, yes, you're fed up with Trump evangelicalism. So are a whole lot of us. Like, let's not give it yeah. that much power to like, right. you know, like, like right. to, to kind of um, take over. You know, you hear a bad song, you don't give up on all music. All but music, I think that, that's a great that, that analogy. Part of, part of what you're doing, Jamar, I think is, is your, it's like when Oscar, Oscar Romero says, um, some truth can only be seen through eyes that have cried, Ooh, right? Re- reminding awesome. us that that um, where we sit determines what we see. And I think for a lot of us, what's important is not just are we reading scripture, but who are we re- reading scripture with? You know, I That's think right. my, my friend Bob Eckblad that wrote one of the best titles, reading the Bible with the damned. And he basically Ooh. talks about why, like who you read the Bible with affects what you hear and what you see and who's writing your theology affects yes, what you hear. Yes. And it's not, it is, it is about truth, but it's also about constructing 
a really true and beautiful Christianity that can survive the storms, right? It's about a, building a house on on the rock and not on, on the, the rock, yes, on the on the straw of the white Jesus, Hallmark Jesus, yeah. So you're really getting into some of the meat of the relationships part of the arc of racial justice. So what I've noticed, um, I spent a bunch of my formative time in conservative Christian circles, but since uh, grad school and doing this PhD in history and some other circles I've been in, uh, more exposure to white progressives, whether religious or not. And what I've noticed is the same essential issue, which is a lack of relationships with people who are different. So they're not doing the same thing, you know, far right and 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 left-leaning folks. They're they're about different things. But when it comes to race, what I've noticed, and I don't mean to offend anyone, but what I've noticed is the the work that white progressives have to do is not just saying the right things and appearing on the right side of racial justice, but actually cultivating relationships across racial and ethnic lines so that it's not simply an intellectual ascent, but a relational connection with Mm. people who are different. And Mm. that's where your conviction has to arise from. It's that you know people, you care about people, and what affects them affects you. But I find so many folks in white progressive circles who are just as closed off, just as homogenous as people on the far right. Um, so, yeah, again, just an yeah, area to work on. I want to read a piece of this because this is exactly what you're talking about. You've got this. Uh, there, there's a really wonderful pastoral side of, of the book where, um, I mean, even when you talk about, um, I'm not going to get into all the nitty gritty of it, but y'all got to read it. Just so you, if you're just tuning in, we're talking about how to fight racism with Dr. Jamar Tisby. And I mean, he's given a lot of, you give a lot of tools, congregations to really tell the truth about their history, their complicity or their resistance to, uh, you know, uh, racism. And, um, and, but even when you said that, you said, when, when, when you do it though, uh, do it like a shepherd, you know, prodding the sheep. You don't that's need right. to like pour. Uh, there, there's already going to be some heavy things. So the last thing they need is someone else that's hammering them again. Like you're walking people into truth. And you talk about this in this this section called cancel contempt, which is beautiful. Mm. You, you talk about that. What I often talk about is self-righteousness, you know, and Jesus yeah. called it the the yeast of the Pharisees. It's poisonous. Um, but you talk about it as contempt and superiority. So I'm, I'm going to read this little paragraph. Contempt is the poison pill of racial justice. A distorted understanding of personhood leads to feelings of superiority and inferiority. People who act in racist ways can treat people of color with contempt, believing others are somehow less capable or more prone to error than they are. But on the other side, and this is what you were just talking about, racial justice advocates can quickly become contemptuous of those they view as racist and view themselves as superior because of their enlightenment or wokeness. While one side... <laughs> has healthier beliefs about race than the other, contempt is never the answer. So that that contempt is still poisonous, even 100%. if it's progressive instead of the uh, the other stuff. Yeah. So I want to get into some of the practical stuff. Um, and, and the ones that I highlight are the ones that people reflect back to me have been really impactful yeah, to them. Yeah. So on the awareness end, right? Like if people are looking for, okay, what do I do practically? One of the things is to do your write your own racial autobiography so good yeah by which i mean 
analyze your personal historical experiences with race and racism. So some of the questions that 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 that, that can you you can use for prompts are what's the first memory I have of race? Like when do I remember becoming aware of race and skin differences? Um what did my parents teach me about race and racism? Is it something talked about openly? Is it something they hid? Is it something where they were spewing racist ideas? Um, what surprises me about my history with racism? I never really thought about it, or I've always had an awareness of it, or whatever it might be. So the the the, the point being, before we try to do this like racial justice work out there, we've got to do some racial justice work internally. And that begins with simply an awareness of what kind of structure and framework and ideas around race that we've absorbed before we had a consciousness of it before we were intentional about it. And I think by writing it down, actually writing it down and not just thinking about it, that helps us develop self-awareness, which is a huge part. And I actually, I wonder, <laughs> Shane, just selfishly, what I, I really admire about you is that everything you do externally seems to arise from within and from a relationship with Jesus. And I know that's not just like you sitting outside with your arms up and absorbing, you know, God. I'm wondering what those disciplines, what those practices look like that keep you sort of in touch and in relationship with Jesus so that you can go out and be bold and courageous and do all the incredible things you do. Um, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to keep dodging it, throwing it back on you. But I, <laughs> I, I will say, as I was reading that, that section about, you know, your own story, part of me started thinking, my dad, my dad died, Jamar, when I was really young, when I was about nine years old. So like most of my memories are with my mom, my kind of mm. a single mom raising me up. But my mom always, I mean, and I I grew up in a segregated town. Like I've written mm. about this. Some folks know, you know, we had the Confederate flag on my high school football uniforms on the walls. It was on our lunchroom trays. Um mm two sides of town but my mom was a special ed teacher and we also like i think it began to sensitize me to people who were different from me so i i my mom would bring kids home from the children home children's home that had down syndrome or different challenges mentally and um they were playmates of mine i had a um what you know um a lot of my friends growing up uh even though we were in a segregated town they they had dark skin you know i had a girlfriend mm. that was black really really <laughs> really young and my mom was always fine with all that you know not more yeah. more than fine like it was just natural and um I was uh, I, I was prom king when I was in high school, and I always tell people oh, like, don't, don't get too excited. It was a very <laughs> it was a very small town, but this is interesting though, is that the prom queen was uh, African American, and she was one of the only Whoa. black you know women in the in the school that I was in, and so there were lots of collisions that began to shape me. Um, certainly, my love for Jesus like is the root of so much that compels me, just like you, when it comes to ju racial justice. But I started to look look back at all those like what might seem to be little things in my own like racial autobiography as you say and mm -hmm. think like no these were all like kind of fault lines little cracks that yes. began to um open things up for me and my mom probably didn't even think that much about it, right. it just kind of came right. out of who she was you know but um 
Yeah. And I mean, even just recently, bro, like I, I took my mom up to the mountains where, cause I was, we were, I was asking my mom, do you know if we um, owned people? Like we're, where, mm. where do we fall in all this? We're in the mm. hills of East Tennessee. And she's, she took me to the cabin where her grandmother, my great grandmother lived. And she said, we didn't even have running water. Like, um, <laughs> yeah. Like, so we, we were really poor mountain folks that grew up yeah. you know, in the smoky mountains that doesn't mean that we didn't have some complicity with the systems like that's what i'm continuing right. to try to um you know pull the layers off of but like so i think it's cool to like you know, part of what you i got out of your book is that there's so much nuance in all of this we've all got different so stories much. we've got all got different histories and that's why there's not one little prescription of what that's you right. need to do right that's right but all of us you know hearing this like start to look at your own story, you know, start to like uh, research your own people, but also think about like, how am I going to do this with, with the young people who I'm. That's um, it. That's it. Pouring into it. I, I love that you brought that up. That. Yeah. Cause, cause you, you, you're talking about the influence that your mom had maybe even unconsciously subconsciously, right. She's just, this is who she is. And then she's sort of sharing it with you, but that just sort of, underscores something that I'm seeing again and again and again in this racial justice work, how important those formative childhood younger years are, which is the word to adults who may be listening or watching. If you have any young people in your life, whether students, children, nieces, nephews, whatever, what, how, how you address race and racism now has decades long impact. Now that's, both frightening and exhilarating, right? Right. Yeah. So it, it, what I'm saying is it's there. It's it's going to be there. You're having an impression on them, whether you intend to or not. So let's be intentional about it. And let's yeah. make sure that if it's going to have this lasting impact on young people, let's have a positive one. Let's help them understand other people. Let's, let's learn the do's and don'ts from our own upbringing. My parents hardly ever talked about race as black people because they were of a generation, a boomer generation, where the way you got ahead as a black person was you minimized any differences you had with the white people around you. Like you don't bring up, you know, the the, the court case that's happening in current events at work because then you're going to get labeled and you won't get the promotion. You won't be invited to the meeting, whatever, whatever. I came up in a generation where the ethos was different because of the way people in my parents' generation were able to interact and make progress and all of those things. Point being, you're already having an impact on the young people in your life in terms of how they think about race. So let's do that much more intentionally. One of the things that I encourage if folks are looking for something practical, take them places. There's nothing like the power of this sort of experiential journey. And so it could be a monument. It could be a museum as boring as that seems for a kid. There's bits and pieces that will leave an impression. And even if they don't remember a thing about the museum in terms of the history, they'll remember that you took them and you thought it was important. And that's going to stick with them. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. And I mean, you, 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 in the book, you kind of talk about not just teaching them, but showing them, you know, the kind of show and tell sort of thing. And I think that's, you know, it's true for young people, but it's also true in the church. We have all these like concrete smells and bells, you know, like depending on your tradition, you know, you've got um, all these like concrete things we do. I mean, if nothing else, like the Eucharist, right. That are really um, taste and physical taste ways. (laughs) And, 
I think we need to to think about that when it comes to our worship. I mean, you talk about creating space for lament. Um, we've done some of that at Red Letter Christians. You know, we had these stations of the cross that were painted by condemned men on Saw Tennessee's that. death row, right? Like that that adds a new layer to your reflection on the most famous execution in history, Jesus. But when they're painted by guys that are right now, some of them still facing execution or, you know, in Philly, we've got these congregations that do um, uh, memorials of the lost. So they're, they're t-shirts that are put on the lawn or the, the campus of the church with the names and ages of everyone who's been killed by guns in our city. So that means I've over like, 500 shirts last year that these churches have in front, but there's a lot of ways, right. That we can remember the names. That's what black lives matter has done, put names and faces on this. So like, let's think about, this is one of the things that Jamar, that Dr. Tisby does in the book is like looking at the ways that you can craft worship, that we can raise kids and show what history has done, but also the possibility of beloved community. Right. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I just wanted to shout out, this is uh, the Young Readers edition yeah. of How to Fight Racism, a, a guide to standing up for racial justice. It's it's for kids ages eight years old and up. And in light of what we're seeing out of Florida most recently, where they've changed yeah. the standards to say that, you know, slavery taught black people some valuable skills. There's a whole other episode, but point being, if you want young people to learn more accurate racial history, I basically include like a summary of the color of compromise in here, which is to say there's about a third of this book is is history written in an engaging way. And so this is one tool that adults can use with younger folks, I'd say up through high school, honestly, yeah. uh, if if you want them to get some more historical background. I'm going to just say to everybody listening, and usually I give you all time to like post questions and stuff. And this hour has flown by. We got a few minutes. Flown left, by. <laughs> but if you do, it, I, I monopolize the time because I got so excited to be with Jamar and I've just been taking up the whole hour with him. But if you do want to post something, we're, we're monitoring on, you know, Facebook and YouTube and Twitter and stuff. If you put a question, we'll, we'll try to get it, at least get it to, to Jamar, but we might be able to talk about it. Um, before I give you, you know, plenty of space to wrap us up in a minute, man. Um, one of the things that strikes me is your your um, as you give these really concrete ideas, right? Like host, some of them are small, like, and some of them are more robust. You know, hosting a freedom school, doing a candidate candidate forum, but supporting, um, you know, black led organizations. Like some of these are mm, pretty small huge. things. And one of them, I when I was reading yours, one of the things that uh, you did was you just. Um, I think it was after Philando Castile was killed. You just texted your pastor and you said, I don't know if you saw this, but um, yeah. would you, you know, I wanted to make sure it was on your radar. And, and you even said, you know, you might mention it, uh, no pressure, you know, or something like that. But I, I think <laughs> right. like the, 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 like the simplicity of some of these things, we, we overthink some of this. Right. And sometimes it's 100%. just a matter of being fully present and going, what might the spirit do right now? Like I take you two minutes to text your pastor and say, you know, um, this is, this is heavy on my heart. I just wanted to offer yeah. it to you. Right. So I don't know if I there's any of those example. other ones that you, uh, you, you give a lot of them in the book, but yeah. Yeah. To, to your point about that example. So, you know, speaking of reconciliation, I was, I was in it, my pastor, uh, you know, it, it, we had very big differences, 
on racial justice, but he's a perfect example of, I'll leave the light on for you. He wasn't malicious in any way. It just wasn't on his radar because his entire Motel circle, 6, by the way, not Red Roof Inn. There you Motel go. 6, Thank you. Yeah. Motel 6. You're just you showing your, your, you haven't stayed in a lot of Motel 6s. No, I'm just kidding. Go, go ahead though, man. Go ahead. Most people don't even remember commercials. They're all on streaming. They, they don't know what I'm talking about, but I still use that analogy. Um, yeah. So this pastor, he, he was not in any sense, like woke. Right. And he very humbly was like, you know, Jamar, I know what you do. So please help me. And so Philando Castile was one of these things where it was devastating to me personally. And it was just something that everyone was talking about. It was, it was just made headlines across the news. And uh, yeah. I texted him on like a Friday or even a Saturday. And I was just like, Hey, this is, this is going on. Cause I was aware that he probably wasn't aware. And to his credit, you know, he received it. He um, prayed about it, spoke about it the next day, didn't do a whole sermon on it, but mentioned it. And so to me as a black person, just, just for folks who are maybe in charge of organizations or churches, and you're wondering how do you reach out to people of color and make black people feel welcome, things like that. That gesture that he heard me, that then I heard it from the pulpit, mm-hmm. that was massive. You know, that gives you a little bit of encouragement that you can keep going there. Um, so that's a, you know, a basic thing. Another basic thing is money. I mean, yeah. truly, like Black-led organizations in particular, right? We, um, I'm now at Simmons College of Kentucky, which is a historically Black college, Um HBCUs are 3% of all colleges and universities, yet they graduate 20% of all Black people. And when you look at specific disciplines like doctors, lawyers, engineers, it's up toward 80% of those folks coming out of HBCUs. So we punch above our weight in terms of impact, but we're often doing it with less resources. So what does it look like not to invent something new, not to add a program to something that's already being led by white folks, you know, God bless, but there are black folks and other people of color doing the work with not the same connections, not the same resources, and certainly not the same finances. And so I would just never underestimate the impact of writing that check or in this day, sending that Venmo or the cash app to a black led organization because you enable them to do what they're already doing and, and catalyze and fuel the good work that they're doing. So there's a bunch of basic stuff um, in there. I tried to have a mix of, I can do this, like, you know, go out tomorrow and execute this. Volunteer at the YMCA, right? That's one of the ones. Yeah. That's a good one to get relationships, right? Like don't play in the church league all the time. Go play some pickup games at the Y or the park. Yeah. Guarantee you're going to meet some black folks. Right. Um, So yeah, but then also a mix of the bigger things like, yeah. you know, stuff that you're involved in and, um, you know, abolishing the death penalty and things of that nature. It takes all of it and it takes all kinds. But the first step is to take a step and realize that we each have a responsibility, no matter what that action looks like. Take one step and then the next and then the next. And before you know it, it's going to have a transformative impact on you and the people around you. So good. So good. I- 
I got like three pages of notes we didn't get to. So we'll just have to do this next. Week. I kept yeah, talking, uh, man. No, no, no. Uh, I just so like having a conversation it was with so you. so great, man. I love it. <laughs> yeah. But I'll just so you know one other way. History doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Come on. That was so good. But so many great quotes. Well, anyway, we're almost out of time, but I want to uh, make sure um, I got a little I want to read your like the benediction you give at the end of the book um, uh, as we close. But I want to make sure that people know how to follow you um you've got this sub stack right that's one of the main ways people can check out and like regular content that you're creating all the time you're on instagram threads and twitter your name jamar tisby anything else on like how people can keep in touch with you man other than continue yeah. to see you visit all the time when, when we have you at rlc <laughs> absolutely um i'll i'll just be shameless because not enough do people do not enough black people do this is you can be a paid subscriber to Substack. So if you appreciate my work, you can subscribe and 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 literally financially support that work, which it, it's a writing platform where I can say what I think needs to be said around race. So what you're what you're what you're supporting is the freedom to speak about race in ways that are curtailed in a lot of other venues. Besides that, I've got a podcast called Footnotes where this fighting racism fighting racism series is taking place. You can also find me on Instagram threads. And for some reason, I still have Twitter um, at Jamar Tisby. And um, yeah, if you follow my socials, you'll be able to keep up with all my latest work. Yeah, so good. So make sure y'all check it out. This is the latest and there's a new one coming. Uh, more on that later. But how to fight racism, Dr. Jamar Tisby. Um, so many great tools. If you haven't seen it yet, just great work to do internally on your own racial identity development tools, like really practical stuff that he's given us to work on. So keep up with uh, Jamar. And, um, you know, at, at Red Letter Christians, we say, and I think this is one of the truest things uh, about us, is that we are a web of subversive friends. And mm. you write a lot, brother, about friendship and how um we we need others we need to do other stuff than just friendship but it's hard to do most of that other stuff if we don't have some relationship and um 100%. that little section you have on how to make a friend warm my heart and it just made me as i read it i i thought i'm um i'm just absolutely humbled and thrilled to be able to call you friend my man so thank you. The feeling is mutual. Thank you for this platform. Thank you for uh, shining a spotlight on this book. And more than a book, it calls us to ask the question, what can you do to fight racism right where you are? And I hope people will ponder that and more importantly, act on it. Yes. And this is holy work. It's holy work. So let me send you out, everybody, with the words of Dr. Jamar Tisby. This is kind of the closing of his book. Spoiler alert, but it's a beautiful <laughs> kind of kind of prayerful send off for us. And let, let's let me just read it to you tonight. We cannot give up. We are people of hope. Hope is not blind optimism. It is a realistic assessment of current conditions with the faith that tomorrow can be different. We are people who believe that a brutal unjustified murder resulted in a resurrection. Come on, y'all. The organ's playing now. We believe <laughs> that a poor carpenter from Nazareth conquered death and is forming a people who will join in this triumph. Each day that we live is the opportunity to be witnesses to the resurrection life and the coming of the kingdom of God. We pray and work for that kingdom to come and for God's will to be done, not just in the sweet by and by, but right here and now. The journey for racial justice continues, but the music we may hear along the way is not a funeral dirge. 
It is a fest. It is festival music, y'all, leading us to a banquet of blessings and a harvest of righteousness. Today is the day, and now is the time to join this journey toward racial justice. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Red Letter Christians podcast. Too often, Christians have used our faith as a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. But at Red Letter Christians, we believe our faith is not just about going to heaven when we die, but also about bringing heaven to earth while we live. For more information on Red Letter Christians and upcoming events, additional resources, you can go to the show notes or our website, redletterchristians.org. You can also support Red Letter Christians by giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly sustainer. Just go to our website and click the red donate button. Thank you for being a part of this conversation and for being a part of this movement.